You're listening to Rethinking Hunger, a podcast coordinating the food security fight through critical conversations. Our goal is to highlight the incredible people fighting to change our food system here in New Mexico and in the greater United States. I want you to get the full spectrum of folks that are in this fight. That means people coming to the table with different approaches and varying stakes. Among others, you'll be hearing from food nonprofit leaders, consumers, growers, providers, and policymakers. I'm your host, Sophia Rose. In this week's episode, I'm here with Representative Melanie Stansbury. She represents House District 28, a seat in the Albuquerque suburbs on the east side of town. She's now starting her second term and has a number of exciting things in the works for the upcoming legislative session. As a state representative, Melanie has established herself as the leading voice in New Mexico on water policy. She holds a Master of Science from Cornell University, and she's a PhD candidate in development sociology at Cornell. Melanie currently is a consultant working with philanthropy and nonprofit organizations, and formerly worked as a Hill staffer in the U.S. Senate and a staff in the White House Office of Management and Budget. Her priorities for the upcoming legislative session include addressing climate, homelessness, food and hunger issues, and modernization of the legislature. Melanie has dedicated her career and life to working on community development and natural resource issues in collaboration with state, local, tribal, and nonprofit organizations. So without further ado, let's take a listen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a joy. We're really happy to have you. So I would love to start with you describing your journey to becoming a New Mexico state legislator. What made you decide to run for public office? Oh my gosh, well, it's a long journey, so I'll, I'll give you the quick version of it. You know, like so many people who work in areas around, you know, community and public interest, I just love our home. I love New Mexico. I love our community, and um, my entire life I've done work um, that revolved around economic development, environmental sustainability, and trying to understand how do we support our communities and living full, um, robust, and you know, happy, healthy lives in a manner that um, matches with our culture and our desires and our ability to live in this beautiful place long term. So, um, I as a my first job out of college was as a science educator, and um, that eventually led me to go back to graduate school to study um, sociology, and I focused a lot on water governance and sustainable economic development. And it was through my graduate school research that I ended up going into public policy and ended up working in Washington, D.C. for about seven years, working first um, as part of the executive office in the White House Office of Management and Budget, and then going over to the Hill and working as a Senate staffer. And in 2016, um, at the height of one of the worst droughts, I was working as a water staffer on the Hill and um, working on really challenging legislation. And I realized that I really wanted to come home. 
And so in 2017, I moved home and um, I started working on community issues and um, I attended a meeting with a bunch of folks in my community who uh, were looking for somebody to work, to run for state house representative. And I looked around and I said, don't any of you want to run? And they said, no, we want you to run. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. But if we're going to do it, we have to do it together as a, as a community. And so we did. We launched a big community-wide effort and built a grassroots campaign. And I was first elected in 2018. And that same amazing crew of people got back together and I was just reelected last month. So it's been an amazing journey. Congratulations, by the way, on your reelection. Yeah. How did you become involved in the work you do surrounding the issues of water and food insecurity in our state? Well, I have been a water nerd since I was a very little kid, <laughs> starting at the earliest ages. My very first science fair projects in elementary school were all about water. Um, and so I've always been interested in water. Um, and my family growing up, um, my extended family had an irrigation and landscaping company. And so I grew up installing irrigation systems. And um, I've always just been really, you know, here in New Mexico, water, land, food, and culture are all so integrally tied. Um, they're tied to the fabric of our identity and who we are, and obviously to our well-being and also to our economic prosperity. And so all those things have always been very interested, interesting to me, but water, water kind of chose me. So throughout my career, I thought, oh, well, I'll work in this area. Um, but somehow I always end up back at water. Um, and so uh, I've worked on these issues now for over 20 years and, um, and food security obviously ties to water security as well, but especially for the last several years, um, you know, New Mexico has the highest food insecurity in the country. One in five um, adults now, especially during the pandemic, are now food insecure and one in three children are food insecure in New Mexico. And there is nothing more fundamental to the well-being of a family and, and of, a, of a person than being able to have access to food and water. And so for me, it's like there's nothing more important than we could be working on than food and water security issues. So I think a lot of us are wondering what the upcoming legislative session will look like. Are you convening in person or will it be virtual? Well, that is a big question um, that even we are still trying to figure out. So um, New Mexico has a, our legislative structure is actually set in our constitution. So we meet for 60 days during odd years and we meet for 30 days during even years. And it actually says that in our constitution. And so part of what we're trying to figure out right now is um, COVID numbers are continuing to be high is how do we meet our constitutional duty to meet and work on policy and support our communities, but do so in a way that's safe for the members, for the staff, and for the public. So um, we've had two special sessions this year. We had one a couple of weeks ago where we passed a relief package, and we did one in the summer to balance the budget. And um, both of them were sort of semi-hybrid, but mostly virtual. 
Um, and I think this last session, uh, even though it was only day a day, I think um, the staff did an extraordinary job and showed that we could really do it in a virtual manner that would be safe for the members and staff. So we're going to meet and we'll probably be meeting by Zoom, just like everyone else meeting out there in the virtual world these days. Um, but it's going to be a hard session. It's really hard to conduct legislative business in a Zoom environment. For anyone who's ever been to the Capitol during a session, you know, so much of the work actually happens in the building, but not in the formal committee rooms or on the chamber floors. It's happening in the hallways. It's happening, you know, in the rotunda and in conference rooms and things like that. So we're still trying to figure out how we're going to make it all work. Since March, you've been convening a working group that's focused on the issue of food insecurity and hunger in New Mexico. What was your underlying vision in terms of what you set out for the food, hunger, and agriculture work group to accomplish, and how has it evolved over time? Yeah, so it's been quite a journey. Um, we actually started meeting last summer, and initially our our little work group, I think it started with about 60 people on our email list. And kind of the very first kernel of how this whole process emerged um, is that there, there was already a food and agriculture policy council that had been convening for many, many years and had already done a ton of work for years looking at developing a state agricultural plan um, to address our state's agricultural economy and, and issues around distribution and things like that. And there was increasingly, over the last several years, a desire to institutionalize the work that we do on hunger. And a lot of these conversations were happening simultaneously, but in different spaces. And of course, you can't solve hunger without solving food um, and food production. And in particular, I think, you know, and this pandemic has really highlighted this, is how do you, especially as our food system has evolved to be an increasingly an export um, and highly specialized food production economy, how do you transform the actual food and agricultural sector so that New Mexican farmers and ranchers can feed our own people and provide you know, local food and culturally relevant food into local markets and make sure that we're addressing these really structural issues around hunger in our state? And so our conversation started at that point. How do we connect agricultural production and all of the challenges that our food producers face to making sure that we can get New Mexicans healthy and um, and good food in the community. And so um, we brought together a bunch of different people across all different sectors and started meeting. And we had our first um, efforts as a coalition to work on uh, food and hunger issues together in this legislative session that happened last January. And we were able to pass a couple of bills. We got some additional funding allocated for both the ag side and the hunger side. And um, we were already planning to stand that work back up when the pandemic really hit. And so what happened in March is we called that group back together um, and it was sort of initially on an emergency basis because 
people within the network of, of all the different groups had been um, working on these issues start getting calls. You know, farmers were getting asked, hey, can you get food to this community because they're under shutdown orders? And um, our food banks were scrambling with the food supply um, challenges on the national level to source food. And our state agencies were responding to emergency requests from communities and um, and then also all our meal programs across the state, whether they were schools, pantries, homeless shelters, um, all of a sudden didn't have staff and volunteers and PPE. So when we started meeting again in March this year, it was really how do we untangle and share information to solve this emergency food crisis um, during the pandemic? And, you know, thankfully, we already had been talking to each other cross-sectorally. And so um, I feel like the pieces really fell in place, you know, pretty quickly. And we were able to do a lot of troubleshooting and help support each other. And then that work transitioned over the summer as things started to calm down and um, we started to work out many of the challenges around getting food to people of how, again, do we really rethink our food system and solve these big problems from food production all the way to hunger. But, you know, one thing I, I would just share is like, you know, there's the big macro work of policy and coordination but for me, the real joy and, you know, successes that I celebrate from the work that convening this group has done is in, is in the things that like actually delivered food to people. And, you know, those are the things that really bring just tears of joy to my eyes. And, and one of the best stories for me was, I think it was our second meeting after we started convening after the pandemic. Um, we had a phone call. It was before we started using Zoom. And so we were trying to use my conference line and people were muting and unmuting and there were like echoes for echoes upon echoes. And at some point during the call, there was somebody working um, in a meal program up in the Navajo Nation who was trying to source food. And somebody else on the call who was here in the Albuquerque area that was with an agricultural network said, we have food. And as a result of that connection on that crazy call, um, they were able to move thousands of pounds of food and get it up to the Navajo Nation that week. And, you know, that's the power of bringing all these different people who work across food together is making those connections. And every week as we meet, it's just so cool to see people talking to each other and connecting the dots across our entire state and our food system. That's fantastic. As you mentioned before, in relation to food banks, the, the fragility of our food supply chains was laid bare by the pandemic. How should we respond to that reality moving forward? You know, it's, it's complex because um, the food system that we have inherited took many, many decades to develop into the system that currently exists. And um, the current food system is global in scope, right? You know, our grocery stores, our um, convenience stores source food and supplies from all over the world. And so um, the question of how do you sort of like what I would call repatriate our food system, meaning relocalize it is, is something that people have been thinking about for a really long time. 
And I think that, you know, in the challenge of responding to the this emergency, it's also opened an opportunity because it's forced people to be creative and do things that they were like the barriers to do were too hard to overcome before the pandemic. You know, it's sort of like people knew that in order to bring more local food sovereignty to our food system, we needed to do more sourcing locally and, you know, get a little bit more creative. But before the pandemic, it was still sort of easier to go through these national networks um, for food sourcing and things like that. Um, so, um, you know, I think that the food banks have, through the process of um, the pandemic, developed a lot of partnerships and relationships that they didn't have before the pandemic with local farmers and distributors and folks who can also store food and get it on the ground. Um, the food banks have talked a lot about um, partnerships they've developed with tribes um, during the pandemic and helping to address um, food and hunger issues in partnership with tribal communities. So, um, you know, I, I don't have an easy answer, but it's, it's going to require a kind of wholesale rethinking of the entire system and really creating those relationships between farmers and, and food producers and those who are bringing food to people in our communities. And I think that, that the pandemic has opened that space in a way that we haven't seen probably for generations since food was local. Right. So 75% of New Mexico is currently facing drought and we're already feeling the effects of climate change in terms of more extreme weather events, forest fires, and changing seasons. What are the challenges that ranchers and farmers face as they adapt to the effects of climate change? And what needs to be done to support our agricultural sector and hedge against the effects of climate change? Yeah, so um, we are in currently a, an extreme hydrologic drought. And um, it is clear that we're probably headed into a, even more extreme conditions next year because of the sort of cycle that we've seen over the last year or two. And um, I know that our State Department of Agriculture, along with um, our federal um, you know, extension agents and others who've been reaching out to farmers and ranchers to help them understand the forecasts and know um, how to plan ahead and also what resources might be available to help them um, if it ends up affecting their production. But I think, you know, the bigger picture as we're looking forward at our food system is really tied to this question of how do we build a resilient local regional food system um, and how do we support those who have land and want to work the land to grow food for communities. And so a lot of New Mexico is historically agricultural land. We are an agricultural state. Um, Northern New Mexico, we have such a beautiful acequia culture and a lot of the land up north is um, still irrigated, but a lot of it is not under commercial agricultural production because it's just not profitable or viable um, with the way that people's lifestyles are oriented now. And I think our commercial agricultural sector, which is predominantly in southern New Mexico, has over the years progressively become more of an export market. So we've developed more um, high value cash crops, which we export for sale elsewhere. 
And so in both instances, it's sort of a different set of issues, right? Um, how do we help those who have land and that would like to grow food do so in a resilient and profitable manner that's, you know, worth their time and supports communities? And then how do we support commercial producers who want to sell locally um, to address really infrastructure problems and how to get their food to market? And that is actually one of the hardest nuts to crack for us here in New Mexico, because especially for commercial scale production, we don't have meat inspection, butchers, um, commercial kitchens, um, food distribution networks. And so part of what we have to do is address those infrastructure challenges um, for our farmers and ranchers to get their food to market. Now, what does that have to do with drought? I mean, what it has to do with drought is, of course, all agriculture is going to be impacted by drought. But I think that as we're kind of rethinking the food system and our long-term resilience, you know, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, what do we want to do with the water that we have? And how do we make sure that the water that we do have is being put to its highest use? And I would say one of its highest uses is growing food that's nourishing and um, you know, um, continues our beautiful cultural traditions of agriculture in the state and feeding people in our communities is one of the best things that we can do with the water that we have, in addition to, you know, supporting our rivers and our ecosystem. Really quickly for listeners that may not know, um, will you define what the, what acequias are, just in case they're not familiar? Yeah. Well, acequias, um, uh, actually, I think that it, it's a Spanish word, but it goes back to an Arabic word. So when the Spanish came to the New World, they brought their irrigation um, technologies and cultural institutions and governance structures with them. And throughout the Americas, you know, they um, settled, Spanish settlers settled alongside indigenous communities who also had their own water governance and technologies. And here in New Mexico, the acequia system is both the earthen canals and systems that move water to fields, as well as the cultural institutions and governance institutions that go with them. So it's it's a not only infrastructure, it's a way of life, it's a culture, it's a tradition that gets passed down from generation to generation. So that's actually a really great segue into one of my questions for you, which is um, about your one of your priorities being the need to address the water management system in New Mexico and figuring out how to modernize that system. Can you describe the New Mexico Water Code and your vision for modernization of the water management system? Yeah, sure. You know, it's interesting because um, over the last several weeks, people have been asking me about the, the use of the word modern. And by modern, I don't necessarily mean um, that we um, that we don't incorporate traditional and very ancient systems. I mean, quite the opposite. Um, I mean, how do we look at the science in front of us and our current water situation and adopt the best science, the best um, practices that are um, resilient and will enable our communities to thrive in such a way that we can manage the water that's available to us. And so here in our state, we have, as I've been saying, you know, these 
long millennia old um, traditions around water that our tribes and pueblos have practiced since time immemorial. We have the acequia practices that came with the Spanish that are still very much part of the fabric of our life here. And then we have a water code that was adopted by our state in 1912. And it incorporated some protections for our traditional systems, but really that code, which was adopted at the turn of the 20th century, really reflected the ideas at the turn of the 20th century that was very much kind of in the industrialization of the West, you know, opening large tracts of dry land for both commercial agricultural development and urban development. And so it was intended to really foster the development of large scale infrastructure, dams, irrigation districts, urban water systems um, to develop the West. And so a lot of the ideas, a lot of the ways in which the water code was crafted was, was really kind of in that paradigm. Since then, you know, water management has really transformed over the last 25 years, especially. So we understand now that to solve water problems, you need to do it at a watershed scale, that it needs to not be top down, but grassroots up and really informed by the values and needs of communities. Um, we understand climate change in a very sophisticated manner now and how that's gonna impact the hydrology of communities. And we recognize that water isn't just important for people to use, but that we need our rivers and our ecosystems to thrive um, because they have inherent beauty and value themselves, but also because they're important to us. And so all of those things really reflect kind of the new paradigm in water management. And so my vision and my hope is that over the coming years, we can look at our water code and really take it apart and say, how do we bring this into the 21st century so that we have all the tools we need, the best science, the best you know, um, reflection of our cultural values in our water code and these traditional systems and protection for these historical communities and their ways of life. And how do we make sure that we're, you know, meeting the water needs of people, but also meeting the needs of nature at the same time. And all of that in the sort of sum total is is what I mean by water, modern water management. And so um, I've been convening a work group for the last um, six months to look at our code, to look at the way our governance is organized, and to think about how do we do something innovative with New Mexico's water policies um, that really embody this um, way of thinking about water in a new way. So then with this, with this um, overhaul of the New Mexico water code, and modernization of it impact our food system? In positive ways, I hope, yes. I mean, I think, you know, the, the fundamental question about the future of water in the world, but especially in arid places like New Mexico, is that with the climate change that we are seeing, it's already impacting our system. And so as we look forward, and we're going to have greater variability in the availability of water. Um, we may have more prolonged droughts. Um, we're going to have to really make hard decisions as, as a society about how we want to prioritize water use. Um, so that's sort of, you know, the philosophical framing around, around it all. 
but there's also the need to really improve our infrastructure, use modern tools and technologies to use water as efficiently as possible and move it to the places where it can be used at different times in the same way that we've modernized our electric grid or trying to modernize our electric grid. So my hope is that we can get to a place where we have a set of policies and a modern infrastructure and technology grid for our water um, that allows us to have really robust local food systems that keeps water in rivers to keep rivers alive and healthy and that meets the needs of our communities. And so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That is part and parcel of the whole, the whole reason why we need to do this. Switching gears a little bit, one of the important pieces of legislation you introduced eliminated student co-payments um, for students that receive reduced price school breakfast and lunch. Can you speak about your work on this particular issue and the issue of childhood hunger in New Mexico? Yeah, so, um, you know, I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to work on that bill. Um, the bill was put forward by our governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, and I co-sponsored it with um, my colleague, Willie Madrid, who represents uh, Chaparral, which is a community in southern New Mexico. And, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, New Mexico has the highest food insecurity um, of children in the United States. And um, before the pandemic, it was one in four. Now it's one in three children experience um, food insecurity. And one of the primary places where kids have access to food is in schools, right? Because they were, before the pandemic, they were there. That's where they spent their day. And so school meal programs are absolutely critical to addressing child hunger because it's one of the primary places where kids can get um, at least one and hopefully multiple meals in a day. So there are already, you know, free and reduced price lunches available. Um, but even that sort of incremental cost of a reduced price lunch um, might prevent a kid from getting a meal at a school not necessarily because they couldn't afford it, but, but, but for, you know, sort of like structural reasons and in, in how a family um, accesses, you know, um, the resources available at school. And so what we wanted to do is take that one last barrier away. So if you, you were a family that, um, you know, qualified for reduced lunches and breakfast, that you wouldn't have to worry about whether or not your child paid that 35 cents to get school breakfast that day. You just know that, you know, your kids can be able to get a hot meal in the morning. So we estimated that thousands of children across New Mexico would be able to eat another, at least another meal a day, if not two meals a day by re reducing that barrier. So it was a big piece in the puzzle. And you know, one of the things that is just so beautiful about working on hunger issues is that we passed that bill with unanimous bipartisan support in both chambers uh, of the legislature and it was signed into law by the governor. But it was also the journey of working on that bill was really beautiful. In particular, um, we presented it in front of the House Education Committee and um, as part of the hearing, a number of the members sitting on the dais um, who were hearing the bill shared their own stories. 
You know, we have a citizen legislature here in New Mexico. So many of us actually, including myself, um, grew up um, getting free and reduced price lunches. And that was a place where we got a hot meal. And so working on these kinds of policies is not just something that we do in our professional life. It has deep, meaningful, you know, um, meaning for us as as humans and as a part of this community. So it was really amazing to hear people share their stories as part of that that bill hearing. Food insecurity is closely linked to income insecurity and cyclical poverty. What are some of the ways that programs and services can be improved in our state to help families avoid this, what people call the poverty trap and reach a level of security? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's this sort of big picture structural stuff. And then there's the short term emergency stuff. And you got to work both sides of that equation. So in the big picture, New Mexico has a very depressed economy. It always has. We've struggled um, to grow and diversify our economy and to create uh, well-paying jobs that help um, families to thrive. And that's the big structural work is to is to grow and diversify our economy and improve our school systems and make sure that our kids have every opportunity to succeed and thrive and you know earn a good living and put a hot meal on the table. But the truth is, is that over 40% of our population does live below the poverty line and does struggle um, economically. And so how do we support families that are um, currently, you know, living um, with, with income insecurity? So I think, you know, on the sort of like immediate need of addressing people's needs, we have to make our programs easier to navigate and, um, and, designed in such a way that people can kind of get on with their lives and um, get on with, you know, working towards, um, you know, developing um, skills and getting education they want to get and building careers in areas that they want to. You know, right now, there's so many different programs. People can qualify for, you know, income supports for unemployment or social security or low income assistance. Um, there's all kinds of different programs that help with housing needs, utilities, and food. And then we have food programs that are kind of all over the place. You can get a meal at a shelter. You can go to a pantry. You can go to a church. You can pick up a box of food at a um, at a um, a food bank. Or you know your kids might be getting their meals at school, like we were just talking about. But each of those things takes a lot of time. You know, you got to fill out applications, you got to qualify, they might not meet your need completely. So I think one of the one of the big things that we really have to rethink around income supports is how to streamline the process and um, help people, um, you know, address fundamental income insecurity issues. So they really can, like I'm saying, just get on with their lives, you know, and so that they're not spending their entire lives just trying to sustain themselves with the programs that are available. So it, it's, it's all needs to be integrated and seamless to help support people. So giving, given all of the work that you've been doing with the working group, what is the road ahead looking like in the new coming year? 
So one of the big things that our working group is working on right now is a, a food and hunger bill. And it's still taking shape and we're still doing research to look at um, where we can address some of the challenges where the state has a clear role to play. So in the upcoming session and hopefully the upcoming year, we're going to be putting forward hopefully a really um, robust set of legislative proposals to help support this transformation of New Mexico's food system and to address food insecurity in the state. So if any of your listeners are interested in getting involved or they have good ideas, um, our working group is open to everyone. So you can come, we have weekly meetings um, and bring your good ideas and bring your ideas to the legislative process. And um, if folks want to get a hold of me, they can drop me an email. Um, I'm at melanie.stansbury at nmlegis.gov. And um, I really look forward to hearing from people. Great. I'll also drop that information in the show notes for people Excellent. to access. Okay. So I feel like you've been kind of addressing this question as we go, but I'm going to ask you what I ask everyone, which is how should we be rethinking hunger? I'm taking a long pause because it's a big question. <laughs> Take as long as you need. I think you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, I like the word repatriation. A lot of people have been using the word lately, rematriation. Um, so the, the question of how do we bring it home? You know, our food system as it currently exists and the challenges around hunger are symptomatic of the food system that we developed over the last century, which, you know, was intended on one hand to help our farmers and um, our agricultural and food companies thrive and grow and um, generate profits and created this vast global network of, of a food system. And on the other hand, we have families that are struggling and, and trying to figure out how to put a hot meal on the table and, and, and food in their families' mouths. And so what we really need to do is to kind of rethink, and I think, you know, people talk about local food systems, but I think the economies of scale are such that we need to be thinking about regionalized food systems. Um, how do we create regionalized food systems and economies where farmers and ranchers can grow food at scale um, in a way that's economically profitable, that we can build the infrastructure for processing and distribution that makes sense economically, and then make sure that that food gets to the tables of our families at an affordable price. And so, you know, it's really about the economics, it's about infrastructure, it's about the kinds of food that we're growing, and it's about rethinking how we bring that food back home and, and back to the tables of our families. And so that takes this kind of cross-sectoral collaboration. So how do we rethink hunger? How we rethink hunger is through the lens of fixing our food system. You know, hunger isn't something that happens in a vacuum. 
Um, hunger is a symptom of, of people having trouble accessing economic opportunity, but it's also a symptom of a food system that's terribly broken. And so um, it's really fixing kind of that entire ecosystem in wh which people are living um, so that they can transform their food access and, and thrive as, as individuals and as families and communities. From the New Mexico Out of School Time Network, this has been Rethinking Hunger. You can follow Melanie on her website at melanie4nm.com. And please reach out if you'd like to get involved in the Food, Hunger, and Agriculture Working Group. The music for the podcast was made by Adam DeGraff. You can follow him on his website at adamviolin.com. If you liked this episode and would like to subscribe to our podcast, or learn more about the issue of food insecurity, visit our website at nmost.org. That's n-m-o-s-t dot org. Thanks for listening.